In a world of bus schedules and business calls, sidestep into a realm of Koigyu casting and Klingons. Okay, people, get your geek on. Hi everyone, it's May 11th, 2012, and you're listening to episode 40 of Knit One Geek 2. I'm Karen. And I'm Maggie. And we're coming to you from inside Irene Adler's closet. There's a lot of skeletons in here. And a lot of very see-through skimpy clothes. Try this one on, Maggie. Try what on? It's a pair of suspenders. Won't cover Kate Moss or a broomstick. And in case you couldn't tell, yes, we will be discussing... The episode of Sherlock, which aired on PBS. We finally get to talk about them! Yay! And anyone who has sat through our Avengers episode will glad, be glad to hear that we saw these a few months ago because they were on BBC Canada in February. But we just could not talk about them. Yes, that's it. That's where we saw it. Karen? We didn't want to talk about it until they had shown on TV in the US, just because we wanted everybody, more people to be able to take place in the discussion and really like a huge proportion of our listeners are from the u.s yeah plus i think with the way considering britain got it in at the beginning of the year canada got it a few weeks later i think if anything anyone else from any other countries has probably already gotten it in their country before even the states did so but before we get to that we start off with adventures in knitting well let's see to begin with okay the ruffle cardigan i haven't called them back yet so in other words no progress on that no no progress on that it's sort of it had spinach in its teeth on the first date and that type of That's thing. the one where you're doing it's like one by one it's rib. It's a one by one rib. And I did get a lot done during the Avengers movie, but I mean really the first step I've got to do is do 60 inches of one by one rib. Yeah. That's formidable to go through. That's fairly tedious. So, I've been doing quite a lot well, of tedious. the what is the pattern is the lemonade vodka cardigan and I am renaming it the blueberry vodka cardigan. Vodka lemonade. I haven't had enough to drink, obviously. <laughs> Okay, yes, so yes. Just because if someone searches it for Ravelry, Ravelry search is not that smart. So yeah, the pattern is... So this is Vodka Blueberry. I should just call it the damn Vodka Cardigan. <laughs> the I need me some Vodka Cardigan. Yeah, the, I need me some Vodka Cardigan. Because I am knitting it with Louisa Harding's Cashmere. And it is a very pretty aquamarine sort of like Tiffany blue that I'm very, very, very pre- pleased with. And it's, it's a DK. It's a fun sort of yarn. I did get through, I've actually knit quite a lot for one week, considering that I've got five inches of seed stitch here. It starts at the top with the collar, and I, yeah, I've got five inches of seed stitch over, like, something like 70 stitches. So mm-hmm. that, that was quite a bit to start with. I've now gotten into quite a bit of the increasing for the yoke of the cardigan, where it starts increasing for the sleeves and, you know, the girth of the body. Yeah. And then looking at this, I'm guessing it's a raglan, raglan sleeve? Oh, darned if I know. It's the one where the, the sleeve starts off as a triangle. Yeah. And then widens, and it actually and it makes a diagonal line across sort of the shoulder to the armpit. Yes. And so basically, yeah, you just knit it in one piece. That's he's, awesome. Is good that way. I've gotten quite a bit on this done. And just to have an extra little wee little project that is immediate gratification, because let's face it, I'm going to be doing this for a while. Yeah. I did try to cast on socks for myself with the William yarn that I talked about last week. Yeah, the one from Niche from New Zealand. And I could not find a pattern I wanted to do. I cast on a couple, and I'm like, no, I'm not feeling it. Yeah. No, I'm not feeling it. Sometimes you just so instead, need inspiration. Yeah, instead of pushing it, I just decided I was going to take all of the bits and pieces of sock yarn that I had leftovers, mm-hmm. 
And I started making baby booties. Oh. Because I have friends in multiple places that are donating to the human race. They are making people. Some of these some of these may not have matching booties, so this is gonna this is gonna be an eclectic baby. Here you go, here's twenty booties. Not necessarily in pairs. Well I said with the ones that you can only get one booty out of the skate out of the remaining ball then you can give you can say it's a spare booty for when they kick off one of the booties that they're already wearing. Already yeah, wearing. over when you're lose it. tight walk roping over the falls or something and you can't get that booty back. <laughs> well, or if you know you you're walking around the mall or whatever and you notice that the kid has kicked off a baby booty somewhere between you the don't parking know lot where. And here. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I've been doing and Dr. Convince somebody new to knit. Yes, we, we had a, a new knitter at the uh, knitting group. Yeah, we sort of took turns teaching her how to knit, especially because you were wrangling the elfling. Yes, we're not and even going to so, go there. And so there's a few times she was doing the newbie thing of like, I messed up this stitch somehow. And it's like one stitch out of a row of 20. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I messed it up. And it's like, calm down. <laughs> she told me today that uh, she tried YouTubing purling and it didn't go so well. Oh, honey, don't even try yet. <laughs> I I told her not to worry about it, and it'll all just sort of make sense when somebody sits down with you and shows you. Yeah, and... It will make so much more sense. At least get to the point where, like, holding the needles doesn't feel awkward. I think she's just really super excited. Yeah. To be a knitter. She was but... really super... Ex- one of the really funny comments, the one of the really cool comments, actually, coming back from Knit Night, and Karen and I were going on about knitting and our geek lives, and this comment comes from the back of the car, Your wor- I love your world. It's awesome. Well, of course. Yeah. What's it's got, got to love? It's got knitting and it's got geekery. I'm like, yeah. of course. Duh. And of course, she she only knows sort of like the surface of our, our yes. geek level. The, the tip of the iceberg, so and to speak. She's only seen my stash. Yeah. Which technically, <laughs> which technically is a is a wee little stash. Yeah, I have been intending to flash my stash, so maybe I should. Dude, that that sounds so dirty. It could be if I wanted it to. Okay. Anyways, so there. That's what I've done. Well, I haven't done a hell of a lot because there was a few days. There was a few days this week where I could totally forgot to bring my knitting. I would go be on the bus and be like, "Oh, I should get my knit." Oh, I forgot it. And then I'd like the next day I'd be like, "Okay, I have to remember to put my knitting in." And then I'd again go in my bag when I'm on the bus and like. Damn it, I forgot my knitting again. And then, I know, the, the pattern started earlier this week on Sunday when um, I went to see Avengers again. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, I went to see the Avengers again, but I had just gotten on the bus and the bus had been, you know, driving for like five minutes from the bus stop near my house. I went into my bag and I realized I didn't have my movie socks. I thought they were still in my bag, but I must have taken them out when I went to work the day before. There was a brief moment where I thought, I want I wonder if I could get off the bus, get the one going back to my house, and then get the bus to the movies. <laughs> it did cross my mind for a moment, but this is the Sunday schedule where they only run once an hour, so there was no way I'd be able to make... I wouldn't make the showing I got to, and because I got there like five minutes before it started, and there was definitely no way. I wouldn't even even made like the 115 showing or whatever that I was the latest one that would still get me out in time to get home for dinner. So I want to knit something. You know you're a knitter when. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I want to have empty hands during this movie. I could see you just coming out sort of like stringing popcorn together or something frantically. Yeah. But luckily I had my yarn. I mentioned last week the yarn that I had ripped out a couple times and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. I had planned to change the socks that I was going to do. I plan to rip them out and do a different ver- a different sock or to, you know, fudge the number of stitches that I had on it to do a different sock. And that didn't end up happening because the other sock I was going to do has a couple little designy things in it that I 
wouldn't be able to do in the dark. So I was like, um... Hi, guys. You're now movie socks. Yeah, these were my my backup movie socks. These are the Arch-Shaped Socks by Jen Showalter, and it's from Mean Girl Design. But this is basically, it's a basic shaped arch sock. So what you do is you knit the leg, it's knit from the cuff down, and then once you get past the heel, you knit a couple rows of gusset decreases. It's a basic, you know, gusset and flap heel. And then you start doing the arch shaping. And what you do is you increase on the bottom of the foot and you decrease in a, it ends up being a diagonal line that goes up the side of the foot and then across the top and meets. It looks like a corset on your foot. Yeah. And it makes the the line, the, the columns of stitches angle around the arch of your foot and it hugs them a little more tightly. It makes a really neat shape. I can't wait to see how it turns out with the yarn I'm using, which is from Diabolical, D-Y-E-A-B-O-L-I-C-A-L. And I'm using the Strong Arm Skinny 2-ply, and it's a 80% merino, 20% nylon blend. And it's got this nice little tight twist that I love. And uh, this is the Joe Rides a Motorbike colorway. That's cool. And as we mentioned last week, it's black and purple and dark teal and then in between each color the colors just sort of fade out so there's lighter areas and i love the way it's patterning up it's not pooling or spiraling it's like you get these little just little lines of color it looks almost like it's doing if you look at one side it looks like it's doing a one row stripe but it's not actually you know striping fully around the sock it's so pretty so i've got down to the heel on the first one and then i had to stop because i put this i often put patterns on my ebook reader and then my ebook reader ran out of battery and then i was trying to charge it today but i didn't charge it long enough and it's like technology. It was not being helpful today. So I just had to stop long enough to check to see where I started doing the arch shaping on it. So until then, I cast on the other sock because I split up the skein into two balls a while ago. Oh, and I should mention, this is yarn that I got when I was in Kentucky last year. Yeah. And part of the reason I'm knitting it now is because I'm going to Kentucky next week. So it helps in my brain to buy yarn if I've actually, if I'm actually at least working currently with one of the yarns that I got last here. Karen will have more vacation yarn. But yeah, so I just started the cuff of the second one tonight when I was on the bus. But I really like how it's turning out so far, and I love the colors, and it's going to be fun doing the arch shaping and seeing how the how the, the stripes sort of angle. And that is pretty much all I have been doing for knitting. I have only worked on this one project, because like I said, I've basically forgotten my knitting when I've been traveling. And then when I've been home, I've been like, you know, editing the podcast, yes. as you probably noticed, because, oh man, that was a doozy. And, you know, and when I got too tired to edit the podcast coherently, I then fell down the Tumblr hole when it comes <laughs> to Avengers. I'd be like, must save all the Avengers gifts, which and see all the fan arts. But my other knitting thing that I've sort of been considering is what project I should start next. Especially because, as I mentioned last week, I'm doing a couple socks and things that are very plain. Right. So I wanted something more complicated. But there's also the small matter of going on vacation next week. And I need to figure out a different kind of plane knitting. Yes. P-L-A-N-E. Travel knitting. Yes. So I'm trying to decide what project to do on the plane because it'd be nice if it was something fairly simple. I might just take the arch-shaped socks with me in my carry-on. It should be something simple because that way I can pull it out and then as soon as they're like, please put your stuff away because we're going to land, I can, you know, it's not like I have to finish this row. Yeah, to know where you are. Yeah, or it's not like I need 
need a pattern in front of me right. so that I have to have the tray down and be doing that. Or, you know, same thing when I'm in the airport waiting for my connection. But then there was another project that I have that I'm kind of considering, but it'd be it'd be a good project because, again, it's fairly simple, but it's it would also require bringing more yarn Dough. with me. Yeah. And, you know, it's also, it's the sort of thing where you have to balance, like, what kind of knitting you want to do and what it requires you to bring with you. Because, I mean, if it's a lace pattern or something like that, like the last time I went to Kentucky, it was, I was doing that lace shawl for my mom, but it's like, okay, I have to bring the pattern with me and I have to make sure I can see it. Yeah. And it's not something I can quite drop at the drop of a hat. Other things might be, maybe the knitted item or, you know, when you're starting is not that big, but you have to bring along quite a few yarns, like if you're doing something striped or something like that. Or color work. Yeah, Yeah, color work, striped, you know, even bigger yarn. Like, if you have to bring along a big ball of worsted weight yarn, that can take up a fair bit of space in a carry-on. It can. And I mean, I'm bringing a suitcase, so then it's also sort of like, okay, what knitting do I want to bring? And is there something I want to put in a suitcase as opposed to in a carry-on? Right. Evening Um, evening knitting for whenever you get to where you're going and you want to sit down and relax with something. Yeah. But not necessarily something that's brain-numb. Yeah, what to knit when we're playing 24 Clue at 3 a.m. Oh, dear. (laughs) We did that. It was fun. Was it with bourbon? No, there was no Kentucky bourbon involved. But yes, so there's lots of things to consider. Do they listen to this podcast, by the way? (laughs) No, I don't think they do. Okay. I should probably mention, too, a lot of people always ask when they're going on vacation, can you take knitting needles on planes? And... I've never had any problems with them. The only time I've ever had to even mention it is the last time I went on a plane. And that was probably the reason I probably, I got pulled over for like an extra bag check. Yeah. That was probably because I had my computer and because my computer at that time, like the battery wouldn't really hold a charge. I had to bring the the like power cable and everything. And I'm like, if I don't bring this in my carry on and my suitcase gets lost, I am screwed. So I brought that and some of the chargers and stuff in my bag. So I'm sure they saw the electronic stuff and they were like, uh, yeah, pull this over. But the guy asked me, he asked me, is there anything sharp in your bag that I should know about? Oh, I remember this and story. And for one second, I'm like, should I say it? And then I was like, yeah, I probably should. I, um, there's knitting needles in there. <laughs> because, I mean, it's not like they could really break the skin if someone's rooting around in your bag. I was probably using, like, the Chowgu lace needles or the Nitpicks needles, which are pointy enough to give you a bit of a start if you're rooting around and all of a sudden you feel something that pointy. So I'm like, probably should mention for this. But I know various countries have different rules. Always check the rules of the country you are going to and the country you are leaving from, both of them, because they might be different. When it comes to traveling in Canada and the US, CATSA, which is the Canadian airport security people, and the TSA and the States both say on their websites that it's fine. And like I said, I've never had any problems and I have brought metal needles. Of course, it is up to the individual screener. So I've also heard a couple of people have said make sure to have some knitting on the needles. Oh, yeah. To start so that they can see that you actually, you know, are a knitter. Knit. You, you yeah. know what you're doing and that it's not just like a James Bond kind of blow dart thing. Yeah. Or really, with a circular needle, probably more like a garrote. Yeah, yeah. I might actually, if I'm bringing these socks with me, now that I think about it, I might change them to a different set of needles. Because right now I've got them on the Chow Goo needles. But those have a metal cable as well. It's a wire cable. Right. So that might show up a little weird on... X-ray. On an X-ray machine. Yeah. But yeah, so always check 
the rules. And like I said, it's up to the individual screener. Because as silly as it may seem to us, there are people... And I know the yarn harlot has said before, when people have seen her knitting on the plane, they're like, they, they let, let you, you on with them? those? And it's like... No, I smuggled them in in You're my doing bum. a crossword with a pen. I'm sure you could kill someone with that pen. And I have to think, it's like, have you not seen any of the, James- the Bourne movies? There is one point where he fights a guy armed only with a pen. I'm sure if you really wanted to. But at least this time, I'm flying out of... Into and out of Buffalo. So at least border crossing is entirely separate from right. yeah, the airport. Yeah. And speaking of my trip, yes, I should you, mention... What are you looking for? Well, mention, first mention, I am going to be going to the Kentucky Sheep and Fiber Festival. It runs, it goes from the 18th to the 20th, and I believe there are classes all of those days, but the 19th and the 20th are the only days for the marketplace. Okay. So I will be probably be going, I'll be going on the the 19th, as far as I know, from what I've heard from friends. So if and anybody is going to see Karen, mm-hmm. go ahead, pounce her. I will be there with my Knitwing Geek 2 t-shirt on. It's got my name on the back. I will have stickers. So the first 10 people, 10 listeners that come up to me and say hello will get a sticker. And I may take photos of, you know, any knitwear that you are wearing. As for what I'm looking for, one of the things that I have been thinking or that I've been trying to remind myself about going to this one as a kind of balm to the pain of not going to the, the Knitter's Frolic. You're not letting that go, are you? I'm okay now, I think. It was mainly going up to that day and that day, when, especially because I was at work. But one of the things that I've been sort of reminding myself is like, this is an entirely new set of stores and dyers and yes. everything. And then, of course, there's going to be a lot of local farms that have their own sheep and alpacas are especially big in Kentucky, apparently. Really? Yeah. So they're going to be there with their yarns produced from their flocks. And one of the things I wanted to look for is for quite a while, I wanted to do like a worsted weight shawl, maybe like a, not a pie shawl as in P-I, but as in pie shaped, as in like pie wedges. Okay. So it's not quite a circular shawl, but if you think of like a pie with one third of it cut out. Okay, okay, I that see. That sort what... of curve shape. I'm doing something like that, and I've had an idea for, you know, one that has like lace around the edge and then like maybe a cable, simple cable going up the spine. But something that I wanted something that looked really sort of rustic and warm and cozy. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get yarn for it from like a small, like a farm or a very, or a small independent mill or something like that. I'm thinking I will be looking for that when I go there. Okay. See if I can find. And the shawl, I should mention the shawl in my, that, I want to do. It's not an actual pattern. It's Are you going something to I'm this? going to be putting together. Yes. Ooh. So it's not, I can't send you to a pattern to see it. But yeah, so I'm thinking of getting that. And then there's, like I said, there's other dyers and stuff that are not available in this area. Hopefully I will come home with some pretties. Not that I have done any scouting of websites already to see what sort of pretties might be on offer. Your halo's tilted. And there seems to be something growing out of my, my They're, forehead. Your halo's tilted because they've fallen off of the horns sticking out of your head. <laughs> if you, But yes, though so this upcoming weekend is looking to be a very geeky weekend. Especially because my friends are all geeks and we're all involved in like live journal role-playing games. So like, come on, geeky. And we're thinking of going to see Avengers again. <laughs> together. We've all seen it before. <laughs> see it again together. There is nothing wrong with going to see Avengers again. No! I will definitely be all for that. And of course I should also mention, because I will be gone next week, hopefully this episode, well this episode will have to come out fairly soon, and then there won't be an episode until we record, until we record two weeks from this Friday. So we are going to miss a week. Which is also probably nice for you, because next week is the long weekend. 
It is the long weekend. Victoria Day weekend. It is Elfling's birthday. Yes, and you will have enough to prepare for that. I will that. have plenty to do. And we will a have a crowd of four-year-olds. We will have a guest from out of country. Yes. Coming to visit. I'm getting ready to battle that. Wow. Four, five, six-year-olds, all of them together. Okay, so shall we move into Geek Squee? Geek Squee! And of course, after our discussion of Avengers Net last week, it looks like our viewing and my second viewing attributed to Avengers box office take for last weekend, which, as you've probably heard, is, has had the most successful opening weekend ever. Not adjusted for inflation, but then comparing it to movies that have come out within the last three years, where that's not as much of a concern, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, last weekend, the Avengers took in over $200 million domestically. Damn. I was listening to another podcast where they mentioned that by last weekend, or after last weekend, it had already taken in $600 million Worldwide. internationally, not counting North America, I don't oh, think. Oh, damn. Because, of course, it had been out for a week. That's true. By the time it came out here. And I think they mentioned, too, that the movie cost $200 million to make. It made back the it cost made- of the movie in its first Weekend. weekend. Like, everything from here on is just gravy. A lot of gravy. Yeah. Needless to say, Joss probably doesn't need to worry about having another major film franchise offered to him. Yeah, Avengers now has a global box office total of $641 million, according to Box Office Mojo. And of course, they mentioned that part of the reason for the huge box office is that over half of moviegoers chose to see it in 3D. But, I mean, compare that to the previous record holder, which was Harry Potter, which was 163 million. That's still quite a significant jump. And that was in, out in 3D too. So, I mean, I have to wonder how, okay, what percentage of Harry people who saw Harry Potter the first weekend saw it in 3D? Right. Because obviously the 3D ticket prices inflates the amount a bit, or quite a bit. But again, comparing it to other, other recent movies, especially other ones that have been released in 3D. And you know, when Harry Potter came out, I was kind of hoping, and I found out that it had broken the record. I thought it would kind of hold the, I hoped it would kind of hold the record for a while. But I am okay with Avengers being the one to top it. It was a good movie. It was, it wasn't like it was a, it was an eh movie that yeah. got excess <laughs> exposure and, and yeah. praise. It was a good movie. It wasn't like it was Breaking Dawn. I would have been kind of pissed if Breaking Dawn had broken the record. Avengers, I'm okay with. Oh, yes, and they have confirmed that Marvel has okayed Avengers 2. Wow. What a surprise. What a big freaking surprise. Moving on into other geeky news. In the world of technology, as if we didn't need enough stuff in our hands around our person to tell us everything about everyday lives, Google has a project in the works and I believe several prototypes are actually out in the world at large at the moment. It's called Project Glass. And the idea is that inside your glasses, wherever you look, you're going to have options to do a lot of the things like you would on Google. For example, you will have calendar options. You can look outside at the sky and it'll tell you the weather, the humidity, and chance of rain. You'll get incoming texts and visual messages. Uh, you can set reminders. And all of this will be done inside the framework of your glasses. Yeah, inside that visual field. Right. And it's not going to take up, it's not going to be opaque and take up the whole field because I know people are going to say, well, what the heck, if I'm going somewhere and this suddenly pops up, I'm going to be walking straight into lampposts. Well, no, they're little icons that are actually partially see-through and a lot of them zoom very quickly off to the side. They're just 
pop up enough to get your attention. A lot of the action seem to be voice activated and you can tell it basically to just turn itself off and go away. If you want to have a look at what stuff looks like, you can follow along with the project g.co forward slash project glass and that will take you to the project itself and to a lot of the probably videos and such. Yeah, there's one little demonstration video that we were looking at earlier that looked kind of neat. It's a YouTube video. You may be able to find it easily if you search for Project Glass. I would recite this out, but it's a it partially it's a gobbledygook, gobbledygook. But it takes you through a scenario of a day where somebody, you know, you see it from the guy's point of view who is wearing the glasses and you see all of the options of the things you can do. Great, remind me to buy tickets for this. Oh, hey, so-and-so. Yeah, meet me outside of the bookstore at 2 o'clock. Mm. And it, the glasses alert him, hey, wait, the subway is delayed. Here's an alternate walking route, stuff like that. It's actually pretty yeah. cool. And actually, as he's walking, it shows, like, little directions. It says, turn right Yeah, at 16th Street. He turn even gets inside at... of the bookstore and says, okay, where's the music section? And it gives him a little map to follow. Yeah. And... Yeah, as was pointed out, you know, this is going to lead to a lot of people talking to themselves on the streets, but mm -hmm. we have that happening anyway. And, I mean, the only thing I can think of with that is it is still something of a visual distraction. Yeah. Like, even though they're small icons, they don't block your field of vision, but if you are looking at them, you're not looking at what's going on around I think you. it will be critical that that is not a distraction, that you can turn it off, especially for something like driving. Yeah. Operating machinery, things like that. Obviously, you know, texting and let, let's hope you can't get into anything like Facebook-ish on your glasses when you should be doing your work at your desktop at the yeah. office. Well, too, if it's all voice command, then it's kind of obvious if you're on your Facebook. Maybe. But I mean, little things pop up. Like if you get a, a text message from someone, it sort of pops up in the corner and I could see it. Like I was saying to uh, Admin Monkey earlier when we were talking about it, hopefully there's an option to ignore everything. Yeah. So, I mean, one, voluntarily so that people can't get in touch with you because that's the other part of it. It's like if they're built into your glasses, especially if you're someone like me who needs to wear their glasses all the time. Otherwise they are as blind as a bat, you know, even people like, I guess, regularly sighted people would put them in sunglasses. Yeah. Put them in sunglasses or just have frames with like, clear glass clear glass in them but you know if they want to get away they can still take off the glasses and put yeah. them away but for people like me that have to wear glasses it's not doesn't really have that option so hopefully it has an ignore me option that you can turn off so when you're driving of course then the question is how many people are actually going to do that considering the number of people that still still text and stuff and use their cell phone and update their facebook while they're driving even when there are laws in place to stop that but it is a really neat thing that sort of it's hands free and it does off offer those interesting useful options and it is also just kind of neat just to see if it's if they can do it to yeah you know, create and to put all that technology in frame like glasses frames especially if they're not like really thick frames. i wonder if it can be seen from the like if i'm talking to you and you get a message would i be able to see that you got something in your glasses or is it only visible to you that would be interesting, especially at a meeting. <laughs> yeah. So I, am I imagine the way it brings out things, like say when you want to check the weather, you look outside and there's like three different possible little icons that appear in the top of your frame of vision. Right. And then I imagine it uses the direction of your eye where you're looking to decide what one to open to say that, okay, you want the weather. So I imagine at the very least, someone else talking to you would be able to see your eye movement, which sort of, I just sort of got the, the mental image of someone of a man and woman talking to each other. 
And if the the icons ended up sort of lower down, <laughs> the woman sort of being like, is he doing something with his Google glasses or is he looking at my boobs? There's a comic right there. It's like, hey, my eyes are up here. It's like, oh yeah, I'm checking my email. Sure you are. Not that that would be any better, really. I could see that getting annoying if you're like trying to have a conversation and your email and everything is just so much more prominent in your field of vision. Well, the thing is that uh, I know they're trying to push technology and, you know, we're all trying to become Star Trek and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But after the tablet and the Blackberry type thing, if it's not the glasses, what what's the next step? The Matrix? And plus, gla and glasses do sound more comfortable to me than, you know, say something embedded in your skin or something. Yeah. Some sort of weird technology like that. I know it should be interesting to see where it goes and to see what it can do. And then another cool thing I found was apparently, you know, the statues, statues on Easter Island, you know, the big stone heads that stare out to see. long noses. Apparently they also have bodies. This was the coolest thing. <laughs> There's a project called the Easter Island Statue Project that has been going on for quite a few years. And they've been doing archaeological excavation of the statues. And guess what? When you dig down at the bottom of those heads, you find necks and shoulders and entire bodies on these statues. And it's quite amazing. I originally saw the article on the Mary Sue, and it linked me over to an article on thethinkbox.ca. And it's from May... The article's from May 10th. So you should be able to find it looking through the, the past dates. And there's a few, like, amazing photos of people who are excavating these statues. And I'm looking at one right now. There's people, there's four different levels that people are standing on. Yep. And they're standing next to these statues. And, like... They're enormous. They're enormous. Each level is the height of a person. Yes. So there's three levels underground for this one statue. So just the body of this statue is the height of three people. So you're talking easily 16 to 18 feet. And then with this particular statue, it's, say, only been buried up to, let's say, the chest level. And there's another set of people standing on the on ground level next to it, and they only come up to its shoulders or its chin. These things are enormous. And the amazing thing is that when they excavated them and found the ones that are underground, the parts that are underground have these amazing carvings and petroglyphs on them. That are so well preserved. Yeah, amazingly well preserved because they've been underneath the soil. Basically, the soil has kept erosion from happening to them. There's even one that has a sailing ship carved on it. And you can see they have an image here on the Thinkbox article, and you can see like this sort of half moon or crescent moon boat shape with three masts coming up from it, each with a sail. So it should be fascinating to see what they learn about the culture. And you can from... see something as subtle as that guy's navel. Yeah. They Which have, I know sounds a, odd to hear. He has a belly button and he has, look at the, you can see the hands. Yeah. The fingers are sort of wrapping around the belly. Around his girth, yeah. And of course they don't know exactly how these were buried up to their heads. Um, or even why. Yeah, they're, they're not even sure whether it's erosion or whether they were purposely buried. I mean, as I was thinking earlier, if you look at, you know, if you go to a cemetery that has old gravestones, after a while the gravestones, you notice they start sinking into the ground. Yeah. So eventually part of them is, is covered up. But then on the other hand, like some of these, they're so detailed, the parts that have been buried. So you kind of have to wonder, okay, how long would it take for them to sink to that point? And Cause these would it have been eroded by the wind and water? Because these are right near the, the ocean. Yeah. These were calculated to be about 750 years old. Yeah, it was, they, yeah, it's, it says it's generally accepted that the statues were made sometime between 1250 and 1500 AD. And actually, the Easter Island Statue Project has a website at www.eisp.org, 
And from there, they have complete reports on each excavation season and lots of photos of the statues as well as other items that they've brought up from the the excavations. Just looking at it, it kind of seems like an obvious thing now. Like, duh, of course they had bodies. Of course they have bodies. They're... (laughs) They're not just heads. Yeah, and I mean, it's that they've been they've been excavating these for years, and I'm sure before that there was all kinds of paperwork and red tape they had to go through before they could excavate it, because I, ha- I haven't actually seen it listed here, but I, no doubt these are a UNESCO, like, world heritage site. So, and it's the sort of thing that would be very highly protected, so you have to get all kinds of permission to do excavation yeah. on it. You have to have the right team and the right equipment and everything like that. So I'm sure for years before they actually started excavating them, they knew there were probably bodies to the statues, but they just weren't able to excavate them yet. But like, but even like when I was a kid, you know, you read about these things in like mysteries of the world books and stuff like that. And I don't remember anyone ever saying in any of those things about, you know, maybe there are bodies attached to these. They always describe them as heads. Yes. Just heads lined up along the coastline. Yeah. Like, nobody ever thought, strokey beard, strokey beard, strokey beard. Are there not bodies attached to these heads? Yeah, I know. And it seems like such an obvious thing now. Yeah, it seems like sort of an obvious thing to, like, this is sitting there. What would happen if we just sort of dug around it and then kept digging, kept digging and see, you know, what happens? See what we find if they keep going. But it's probably, you know, it's possible this is, you know, something that's been known or suspected in the academic community for quite a while and just not reached public consciousness. But I still think it's pretty awesome. And it's amazing. And you have to look at them and wonder, like, how were these made? And how, where was the stone from? From. And if it's not from that specific site, how did they get it there? And how were they carved? And how were they erected? Because at the very least, they... Those stones were probably were not naturally aligned in the way that they are mm-hmm. along the coastline. So at the very least, they have to be arranged in the standing formations that they are. Yeah, and then you get into the it's the same sort of questions like with Stonehenge and the pyramids, where you know historians and scientists have been trying to figure out you know how were these stones brought here and how were they carved and everything like that. The aliens did it. Thank you, Eric von Däniken. That's the easy way out. There's a lot of really cool photos here. I want to take a better look at these. There's actually some really interesting... There's field reports and conservation reports, too. Because, of course, once they've been exposed, you have to take very careful to make sure that whatever's been exposed doesn't start disintegrating. And, as we mentioned, this week on PBS, they showed the first episode of the second season of Sherlock, A Scandal in Belgravia, which we can finally discuss. Yes. So just in case there are people who still haven't seen the episode, you know, who maybe didn't get a chance to watch it on Sunday night and then, you know, haven't got around to been able to get around to watching it. If you missed the episode when it aired on Masterpiece Theatre, PBS does put all the shows on online on their website. Uh, if you're in the States, you should be able to watch them fine. Elsewhere, I know it could be kind of spotty. I remember watching one of the episodes of Sherlock on one of the computers at work during my lunch break, but the other two didn't work. It just said this video is not available in your area. So. Right. So we'll give you our, our non-spoilery thoughts, and then we'll let you know when we're going into spoiler territory, and as usual, we will warn for when we end the spoilers so you know when to come back. So... So, scandal in Belgravia. <laughs> first, just the main thing. Like, I remember when we watched this for the first time. Yay, we have Sherlock back! <laughs> Again. Oh my god, this was such a drought to go through. Yeah, and we had it easy, especially because we found it. Well, I had heard about it for months, but I sort of forgot about it until 
it came out on PBS, which wasn't until like sometime last year. People that it had aired in Britain like a good six months before we saw it yep. here. Yep. So they've been waiting like they had been waiting like a year and a half for the next three episodes, which it sounds like we're gonna have to wait for again. <laughs> yes, but at least it's been green lighted to go forward again. Yes, and we know it's coming. Do you feel that it remained true to the concept of the original story? Original story as in the Jonathan Conan Doyle yes. story? Yeah, as much as any of the other stories do. And mm. this one especially seemed like it remains very see, of course the original story is a short story. Yeah. Well a lot of them. So I mean we can say that the short story forms the basis of like the first third of the episode we'll say yes that can, that's accurate maybe even less the first meeting with yeah. her and then of course they have to build on that because they have an hour and a half to fill so they have to you know deepen it and make it more complex in the original but i think again like they always do such a brilliant job of bringing in elements of the original stories even ones not not necessarily elements of this story but bringing in other stories there are lots of little references in those first few, in those first like 10 minutes to other Sherlock Holmes stories. So keep your eyes peeled and see if you can spot them all. Yep. We'll mention the ones that we saw in, when we get to spoiler territory. What, and, do you, what do you think of the actress that oh played God. Irene Adler? Laura Pulver. She's just awesome. Yeah. She's so amazing. She has, she just inhabits the character. She does, she does have this very powerful aura that comes off very well. She wears the character's skin very well, and she just she just seems so natural at the part. Not in... You could take that no, the wrong way. Yeah, well, <laughs> your choice of no. words and the scene that's going through my head. Yes. <laughs> well, okay, so I'd say, like, I'll just say that she seemed, like, pitch perfect as Irene Adler. Mm-hmm. It's no secret that this is the one with Irene Adler, because it's based on the original story was A Scandal in Bohemia. But, of course, that's part of the fun of these shows, where, like, Okay, you know the original story, so you know certain elements of it. Now you get to see how they take those elements and twist them and change them and add to them so that then they become a new story and you don't know how it's going to go. Right. And what's going to happen. Just like a study in Scarlet became a study in pink. pink. Yeah. And so the very, you know, the origins of that story in the very beginning of it were similar, but the rest of it is very different. And too, like, and then even when they put in elements of the original story in the conclusion, like with a study in pink, then you still, because they've changed other things, you don't know how they're going to deal with that end point. Especially when it comes to future, to the other episodes we will be discussing in the season, in the second season. You may sort of know where it's going, but you don't know how they're going to change it or what they're going to change it so even the ending is sometimes up in the air and we should say too like the first episode picks up right where the last episode left off and it's very interesting to see how it's resolved especially because after seeing the second season i had gone back and i had read like some of the fanfic and other things that people had created in that gap to fill in that and that people had to figure out how to deal with that cliffhanger and so it's very interesting reading what the fans came up and then seeing what Stephen moffat and mark gaddis did was anybody <laughs> close I don't think so. I don't think so either. And of course, like Sherlock and Watson and therefore, you know, Bennett Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman just have that wonderful chemistry, whether you want to see it as friendship or not, (laughs) friendship, brotherly or slashable. One of the things I remember the first time we saw it again, like I said, watching it, it's like, yay, I have these friends back. Yes. 
Or, you know, you just go right back into their partnership. And especially in 2 when they bring in the other characters like Lestrade and Molly and Mrs. Hudson. You know, you see, we see Baker Street again and it's like, yay, we are back in this place that we enjoy so you much. You came home! Yes. And the writing is just as witty and wonderful. Yes. I don't know how much I can talk about this without going yeah. spoilery. Let's go into spoiler territory. Okay, spoiler territory. So, beyond, like so exactly said, how many times did he fall out the window? I love that bit! Oh my god! Especially because that's a big part of this episode. It's part of the big change that you, we saw starting at the end of The Great Game. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, they're in the pool area and Moriarty leaves that first time. Yeah. And you see, and Watson just immediately, like, bam, goes to his knees. And Sherlock's like, oh my god, are you okay? Are you okay? And gets the the vest, the bomb vest, off him. Yeah. And it's that first, that's the first really big show of concern, concern and emotion and for something yeah. else. And we see that deepening in this episode, because you have... Sherlock and Watson have their their camaraderie, but it's it's much more natural. Like we see them at Buckingham Palace. Yes, and they almost they, there's very little dialogue, and they both just start laughing at the same time, and they seem so in sync. Yeah, like they're just sort of bouncing off each other very naturally. And and then there's the scene with Molly at the Christmas party. Oh my god, that's so. Which for one, I love that they show, we show we get we get Baker Street Christmas. I love yes. And they have a little Christmas party with Mrs. Hudson and Molly and Lestrade, and it's like their little family. Yes. And then when Sherlock's showing off and doing his big deduction about, you know, the gift. The gift and Molly's dress and how she's, you know, put the shade of lipstick she's wearing and this, that, and the other. And every, it's just so obvious to everybody except him. Yeah. Cause you can see, like, as he starts, like, you can see the first couple things he mentions. They show a shot of John looking over at Molly. And it's, I'm pretty, like, at that point, John knows who the present is really for. It's just so painful. Sherlock says his, her boyfriend. It's just so painful. And it's so painful and humiliating and horrible. And it's like, Sherlock, you are such a douche. But then you have that moment. John doesn't even have to prompt him. And he does look actually sorry when he apologizes to Molly. Yeah. And gives her a kiss on the cheek. So it, it, you see Sherlock growing in that sense. And I think part of it, I mean, he said in the first season he called himself a high functioning sociopath, but you know, I have to wonder if it, how much is him changing and how much is like he's discovered people that he actually, despite what he says, he actually yeah. cares about them. Yeah. Because the reason that somebody got dropped out of a window or jumped out of a window three times <laughs> because Mrs. Hudson got very, very scared and hurt. Yes. And there were certain people responsible for this that Sherlock managed to physically lay hands upon. Yeah. And we can explain it. We'll catch, we'll probably explain more of that when we get to that point we're talking about because of course the whole episode the episode starts with again they take picking up from the great game yeah and then all of a sudden moriarty gets that phone call right staying alive staying alive which is so brilliant i love how they play it i love moriarty's little you mind if i get this <laughs> i wonder if they all sat around together and say okay what would moriarty's ring be and they they would all just brainstorm it and i love how you know he picks up the phone and he's like yeah and one of the things i noticed or someone mentioned on, you know, a Tumblr or something like that. Someone mentioned that on the show, unlike a lot of other shows, everyone always says hello when they pick up the phone. Yeah. <laughs> Often on other shows, they just cut straight to the chase. <laughs> but it's kind of neat. When he's talking on the phone, there's a there's that moment where he mouths sorry, sorry. 
to Sherlock, and he's like, oh, no, it's fine. You know, like, he doesn't have snipers with <laughs> rifles pointed at them right at that moment. Yeah, which we can see because of the red dots playing all over the jacket and shirt. Yeah, the way that... With the way that they left it last season. And then you have, oh, Andrew Scott is so good as Moriarty. Because then at one minute yes. he's just talking on the phone and all of a sudden, blam. bam. Oh my God, into, somebody opened a can of crazy. Yeah, because he's all of a sudden, he's like, yeah, what do you want? And then it's like, say that again. If I'm, you are lying to me, me I, I will hunt you down and flay you. Know, I will skin, skin you. you. The way he draws out that S is just... It's so creepy. He's so good. And I was just thinking, too, like, he's so good at going from weird crazy to, like, extremely volatile. And it doesn't seem, it seems really creepy. And not, like, really cartoony villain. I'm supposed to be crazy villain. It's so well done. He is, he does crazy very, very well. Mm -hmm. And there's that line as he's leaving. It's like, if you're telling me the truth, I'll make you rich. If you're lying to me, I'll turn you into shoes. Not, he has some of the best lines. Yeah, not everybody can pull off a one-liner like that. Mm -hmm. But he manages to Tony pull it Stark off. can't pull off that one-liner even. Yeah. It's not Tony's flair. No. And then, of course, we see presumably who made the call. Presumably, yes. <laughs> Irene Adler. Ms. Adler. The woman. Yes. Who, in this incarnation of the story, is a very well-to-do dominatrix. Yes. So successful that someone from Buckingham Palace approaches Sherlock because she has photos of a mem unnamed member of the royal family in rather compromising positions. And the whole Buckingham Palace sequence is just so hilarious. Oh god, yes. Oh my god. Everything from like, from them, they walk in and I have seen so many animated gifts from scenes from the Buckingham Palace scene. Because of course you have Benedict Cumberbatch in, in a, a sheet. sheet and because of course we see him in a sheet and they tell the, the people who've come to get him tell him to put his clothes on and the next thing we see he's in Buckingham Palace in, in a, a sheet. sheet. With clothes folded in front of him. And then, of course, John has that line, are you wearing any pants? And we all know that in Europe, that does yeah, also in Britain, implies... Yeah, in Britain, pants means underpants. And Sherlock says no. no. And then he's like, oh, okay. And John's just like, oh, okay. And then a second later, they just crack up. And I love Mike... Which is, again, just that, that, that mental link between them. And Mycroft has to deal with it. Oh, God. Mycroft. Sherlock Holmes, you are in Buc Buckingham Palace. Put your Our trousers, trousers on. on! I want more backstory on the Holmes boys. Like, how did they actually get to this point of I know. being so antagonistic? Everybody wants backstory on the Holmes boys. And I love how in that scene, too, when they show the photos of Irene Adler to Sherlock, or the, the bits from her website, they intercut that with Irene Adler seeing pictures that someone has sent her on her phone of, of Sherlock, Sherlock being brought in. Yeah. And in the cab, leaving... Buckingham Palace. It's such, yep. a, such a lovely little mishmash of going back and forth with pictures. Yeah, of the way they link them. Especially because, too, then when we see them getting ready for, she knows Sherlock's going to be coming. He's heading her house. He's trying on his disguises. She's trying on her... Wardrobe. Dis yeah, her trying to find the right outfit for her for her to meet him. Finally settling on her battle dress. And I think with the, with the looking at the photos and seeing them both trying, trying on their different disguises or the right personas to gauge which will be best for each other. It really it really demonstrates that whole like setting them up as equals equal foes and someone to her setting her up as someone to be reckoned with. Because of course then when he arrives after his elaborate ruse and getting John to punch him in the face. Oh that's so funny. Punch me in the face. Didn't you hear me? 
I always get punched me in the face, face when you speak. Usually, Usually it's subtext. subtext. Oh, John. <laughs> oh, my John, God. John, you need so much therapy. You need a punching bag. <laughs> you need a punching bag, my dear, but we we prefer that you don't use Sherlock to do it. You forget, Sherlock. I was a soldier. You were a doctor. I killed people. You were a doctor. I had bad days. And then after all that... <laughs> Doesn't work. Yeah. She just walks right in and she's like, yeah, hi, Sherlock. Especially as he's about to tell her the fake name that he came up with. And he just freezes. Because she's entirely naked. Yeah. Oh, she was wearing jewelry. Yes. Earrings. And lipstick. And then, of course, that's the point. And he can't read her. That's That was hilarious. The very first time we saw this, he looks at Irene Adler and all he gets is question marks. And I'm like, yes. yeah, oh my god. And he looks over at John to double check that he can, that he hasn't <laughs> lost his faculties. But it's interesting when he does that, and when, earlier when we see him looking at the guy from Buckingham Palace and figure out where he's from, so many, yeah, so many of the things he picks up on, he looks at the cut of the guy, the, the Buckingham Palace guy. He figures out how much the suit costs. He looks at his shoes. He's an indoor worker. He's got manicured nails. Yes. Yeah. You know, this, that, and the other. He's got dog hair on One his dog trousers. Hair. Two dogs. Three, Three dogs. dogs. Three small dogs. dogs. And then same with, with John. Like, I think the main things he looks at is his clothes, his shoes. There's only a couple things in his face or his skin that he reads one of them is you know the wrinkles around his forehead which means he's tried to call his sister and then his eyes which is late night out and under the other night under eye with stamford so she's not wearing anything and her so she's just given him so much less to work with and her face doesn't betray anything yes because she's just projecting herself out there and not hiding it which is completely contrary to what Sherlock's methods are. Well, she's hiding the phone that has the photos on it. Well, yes, there's but that. But that doesn't take him too long to figure out. And that's very that is very much like the story. It's the same thing with the the fake fire that gets her to look where the photos are. Yes. That's like straight from the book. The American quote unquote CIA yes, or whatever I'm they are. CIA, the American intelligence people coming in. That is not in the book, obviously. And it's quite, it's amazing how she can really kick ass during that scene too. And also during that bit, it's all again bringing up that Sherlock's new emotional link with other people. It's when they threaten Watson that he's like, fine, fine, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. After he's been telling them he doesn't know the code for the safe, and he's, it, that's when he really starts sort of freak out. And again, and then after, when he does get the phone as a Christmas gift. It's kind of spooky the way that she's been in and out of their house. Yeah. But that's her... Yeah, because then, and you know, she, we see her get the... He gets the phone from her, tricks her into getting it from her, but then she gets the drop on him by drugging him and grabbing the phone from him. After whipping him soundly. Yes. At this point, we're, we're all like, oh! Not the face. Not the face. Oh. Not the pretty face. Yes. But, and then she manages to get into Baker Street and put his coat in his bedroom. Yep. And change the text. Notification. For her, for her specific text. Yes. So she programs the number in and change, and makes, puts in a specific sound. But then, like I said, he has that emotional connection because then when she gives him the phone at Christmas, at which point he knows that she's going to be dead. in. Because she would never let go of that phone. Yes. Of course, when the Americans come to get it, and have Mrs. Hudson hostage, as you mentioned earlier. And I love that moment when Sherlock comes in, and he sees her, and he you see him looking at her face, and you can see, like, again, it does the, the Sherlock scan, and it shows, like, the bruising and everything, and the can put together, like... How things happened. How things happened. And then you see him look up at the goon who's got a gun to her head, and there is this look of, like, cold rage behind it. And it's like, oh, things are not going to be going for good for you. <laughs> Like skipping along behind somebody. Someone's gonna get it. Someone's, Someone's gonna, gonna get, get it. it. Yeah. And it's hilarious. And the, the it also shows when he calls Lestrange. He's got the 
the goon beaten up and tied up. And he calls Lestrade and he starts telling Lestrade, oh, I'm good. we're going to need an ambulance. because." And he starts rattling off these injuries. And you see the guy's eyes widen as he realizes he doesn't have, have those, those injuries yet. yet. He's like, oh, he fell out a window. Oh. And Lestrade, of course, asking, how many, how many times, times did he fall out the window? I don't know. I lost count. Chivalrous at heart, though he doesn't mm-hmm. like to admit it. Mm-hmm. Well, and he has that line, you know, John tries to say something about her. She should go stay with her sister for a little while. He's like, Mrs. Hudson, leave Baker Street. England would fall. And I just, oh, there were so many moments like that where we get to see how he's making these connections with other people and sort of letting them in while still keeping him Sherlock and sort of emotionally toned up. Or so he likes to believe himself. Mm-hmm. And especially too because they have this whole cat and mouse thing during it because then of course Watson gets that the car cup pull up and he's like oh crap it's Mycroft again. again. Takes him off and actually it's not Mycroft this time. It's Irene. And I love that practically the first thing he says to her is tell him you're alive or I will tell. There's no like there's no preamble and there's no... John John grows a pair of balls in that conversation. Well, he always had... I, I don't think grows a pair of balls, but he definitely displays it because he's always had a pair of balls. Uh, okay, but, yeah, you're right. You're right. But Which is one of the things I love about the character, even like earlier in the episode. We see, like, he is... But, I mean, we see him, like, with Sherlock, not putting up with his bullshit, not, you know calling him on stuff the, when he's especially when he's showing the, the crime scene and he's like yeah. pass me over and he's like okay but this has a mute button and i, I will, will use it, it. <laughs> yeah you're right and that's one of the things i love about the way they port the way they they're portraying watson he's very he's a very strong person in his own character and i love the whole interaction between irene and watson because he is so loyal to, to sherlock. sherlock yeah and it's it's really neat the way they did it too because like there's always been in the original story i mean she has the name the woman yes He's always, she's always the one woman that was able to match him. And so there's always this whole tension throughout the whole episode of like, just how does Sherlock feel about her? Is he attracted to her or is he? And I think they they sort of really interestingly sort of ride that line because then when she turns up again, needing him to crack that email on her phone, Mm -hmm. it is kind of like she's... She's stumped. Well, and it's also, it is like she is having an effect on him. Yeah. Because of course then he has to, as Mycroft says later, show, you know, show off for a girl. There is that discussion where they're, they're discussing something and, and John just type, just pops up in the back room. He's like, Hamish. You're like, what? He's like, that's my middle name. If you're thinking about names for babies or something like that. Oh. <laughs> because they're having that little cat and mouse tete-a-tete. But then of course it gets into, it gets into the, okay, is she really attracted to him or is she using, using him? him? Yeah. Because we find out that when he cracks the code, he finds that it involves an airliner on a specific flight, and afterwards he realizes that he has just cracked a code for her relating to something a, very big and important to yeah, the British something, Secret Service. Yeah, which then he finds, and which again, which the wonderful writing of the show in another twist. You know, at first he thinks that he has found out about a possible terrorist attack that they are going to let happen because otherwise the terrorists would know that there was a mole, they had a leak, and that the British are and the Americans them, yeah. knew what they were going to do. But then there's that other little twist, and again with the writing, with the and with the way the the writing is so well done because it brings back at the very beginning. We see him interviewing clients. Yes, and a couple several, clients. Several so, of the clients actually have issues that come into the very email situation that he's cracked open. Yeah, because he finds out that basically they've created a fake flight. Yeah, or they've taken this flight, but it's all dead people on the flight. <laughs> they've got, and of course, the thing is, when he cracks it, she sends the answer to Moriarty, who sends it to Mycroft, saying, "Neener, gloating." Neener. 
Neener, yeah. neener, I know what you're doing. Yeah. And, it and at that point, we see Mycroft go, oh, shit. shit. Yeah, and that's before we know that about the fake out. Yeah, and bring out the scotch. But the cool thing is, too, when we find out about the fake out, and Mycroft is still has reason to be pissed because they can't use that tactic anymore. Right. They had used it once before, which was one of the cases that Lestrade brought him in on at the very beginning of the episode. So you've got lots of instances where later in the episode, you're going to be stopping and rewinding visually in your head going, wait a minute, mm -hmm. we, we saw that. We saw that mm -hmm. clue. And I think they excerpt a couple of them because... Too, when they're showing him, at the beginning, they're showing about how, you know, Sherlock is becoming a big thing because of John's blog. And so yep. they show some of their clients visiting. And it's amazing. They show some clients that the stories don't go anywhere. They show a couple clients that become offhand mentions to other stories in the Holmes canon. Like, like the speckled blonde. The speckled blonde, the geek interpreter. Yep. And by the way, these cases are all written up on John's blog. You can read them. But don't go to that yet unless you, yeah. <laughs> until you see do the not, last episode. Do not go past, at this stage, do not go past the entry that says the woman. I think that's what the entry well, is you Well, the thing, don't <laughs> visit it because... If you if you visit it, the one that will load at the top <laughs> is the one is the last oh, most recent entry. Bollocks, that's right. So yeah, so don't go look at it yet. But when the when the season's done, go look at it because all these are written up like as cases. It's hilarious. But then in between those are these ones that link to this plot. Like the guy who's like, These aren't my aunt's ashes. I know what human ash looks like. And you kind of have to I really would love to know what their their writing strategy was. Like if they had this they figured out this plot and they're like, Oh, what if we put references to some of the these people are, are possible make some of these people into possible cases that we put in at the beginning. I can see Moffat walking around going, okay, do we have a mindfuck level of four or five? Yes, because we know they like to do that. Sir, I think we only have a mindfuck level of 3.5. Well, damn it! Bring out the coffee! We're not going home until we get a, a level of five or six. But then, of course, it culminates in the scene where oh, she's trying to hold, uh, basically uh, hold the British government Hostage. Ransom. Yeah. And at first Mycroft is, you know, going after Sherlock, <laughs> like, how could you be so stupid? You let your you let your head get turned by a woman and you released all these secrets and stuff. And then Sherlock turns the tables because he realizes so, she is just as interested. Yes, yeah, she or more. I think they sort of they sort of leave it up questioning. to questioning. Questioning. Like you don't they don't really solidly answer. Is he actually is he interested in her because <coughs> she is a worthy adversary? Or is he interested in her sexually? They don't really answer that. I think Sherlock is kinda of like Sheldon. Yeah. I think he reproduces asexually in a petri dish. <laughs> well there are there are a lot of people who you know, he's become sort of a poster boy or model for some of the, like, asexual fans. Like, there's a lot of, there's fan fiction communities specifically for, for fiction that specifically deals with an asexual Sherlock. Yeah. Who is just not interested not into it. in that. And again, it's one of, and it's one of those mysteries. It's one of the things they don't answer in the show and you can sort of take your own tactic to it. And he does sort of rub it in that he has found her out and that it's her weakness that has and he does it so yeah. cruel. Yeah. Cruel, too. Especially because at, it's at that point that he figures out the password on her phone. Yes. Because, of course, the entire time it says, I am, M. and there's four blank spaces, locked. And he realizes it's S-H-E-R. Sure locked. It's so, in it's an interesting scene, especially to watch, to try and figure out, like, what is he actually thinking and feeling and stuff like that? And then, of course, at the end, we get the, the another fake out because Mycroft comes to John and tells him that Irene's been killed. But then, of course, that last scene when we see her, <clears throat> she texts to send to say goodbye to him. 
Yeah. And then the next thing she knows, she hears her specific audio sound wave that she said for her text on Sherlock's phone. And it turns out the guy behind her with the machete has amazing eyes. (laughs) Wonderfully beautiful light blue eyes. And so all you see are the eyes and like, oh my god, that's Sherlock. And And he tells her when I say run... Run. And if they do such a wonderful fake out, too, because they show him getting the text message and John, you know, lying to him about her, you know, having gotten, he's got witness protection. But so he, and then you see her sending the text and the screen goes to black. Yeah. And you think that's it. And then all of a sudden you hear the little text <sighs> message, <laughs> the little sigh. <laughs> and you're like, oh shit, wait, it's not over. And oh my God, that's Sherlock. And of course that ending and the way it turned out has been sort of controversial with fans. There has been a lot of arguing over that about like arguing. Yeah. Because a lot of people said like the the thing is the way the original story ended, she bests Holmes and that's the way it ends. And in this one, people have argued that she ends up being damsel in distress and he ends up rescuing her and he ends up getting the better of her anyway. And other people have said, would he have but she obviously got to him in some way if he was there to save her butt. So there's a lot of... And it basically, it's this big circular argument, and I can't get into a lot of the... Well, one of the big differences between the two stories is the length of time. Because this one literally spanned what seems like months. Yeah. Well, because we see it looks like fall. Fall, and then it goes into Christmas. New and years. then it goes into New Year's, and then whatever and time post New that. Year's. Whereas the original story spans what an afternoon? Yeah, like a day. Yeah, if that, or an afternoon and an evening. So no, it's very unlikely that Sherlock would have developed great emotional attachment to Irene to save her from being the damsel. Yeah, but he certainly developed a lot of respect for her because he took the picture that was the prize in the original story. Yeah, so I mean, there's a but like so like I said, there's a lot of different you know fandom discussion on that, and I'm not entirely sure where I sit on the issue. I like it. I like the I like the idea of Sherlock being a bit distracted and shaken up. It, it gives girls everywhere something to hope for. And there is part of me that's like. On the one hand, I can see what they're saying. On the other hand, part of me is like, I don't know if I'm that as invested in it. And it's not like I'm saying it's a bad thing that other people are invested in this much or that you shouldn't be invested in this sort of stuff. But again, it's sort of, it's one of the things like, I don't know, I can I can keep it in sort of two compartments in my head and I can enjoy the episode anyway. And then one of the other things I love about this episode, oh my God, the music. God, we were watching, we were rewatching parts of the episode tonight and there's just, oh my God, Irene's theme. I love it. It's just so lush and rich and everything, oh. everything she is. Yes. It, it fits her so perfectly. Decadence. And, but it's really interesting. Like I've been, season one soundtrack is on iTunes and I downloaded it and they haven't got the season two out, one out on the Canadian iTunes store yet. But it's really interesting. It's even like the, the music I noticed from what I've listened or from what I've heard in the episodes and from what I've listened to on the soundtrack has even deepened and become more complex and stuff with the second season. And I just love it to bits. So it's safe to come back now. Yep. And if you haven't seen Sherlock, any of the episodes, if you have not heeded our commands, which a lot of people have, like I keep seeing, it seems like every few weeks someone else pops up on the Ravelry group in a thread and says, oh my God, I finally watched Sherlock and oh my God. But I would highly suggest watching it. There's so much fun. But okay, so moving into Cravings, Covets, and Crushes, we just have one item this week. And this is a book that I got from the library. And I think it's been out for a little while. We only just recently received it at the library. But it's called Knitting Plus, Mastering Fit, Plus Size Style 15 Projects by Lisa Schroyer, S-H-R-O-Y-E-R. 
as I have said multiple times before, I'm a big girl. I am a plus size. And, you know, a lot of knitting, I don't buy a lot of knitting books. And what knitting books I do tend to have like stitch patterns and stuff in them. Because when it comes to buying books with patterns in it, especially sweater patterns, usually they don't, they don't go big enough. Or the other problem I found, there was a couple books that came out last year that are again for plus sizes. But I know at least one of the books, all of the patterns in it used garter stitch, stockinette stitch, or seed stitch. It's nothing that... Like the entire body would be in seed stitch. And maybe there'd be like... A little bit of lace detail around the bottom, or little spots of it. Or See, I thought I was, I was going, I thought I was going to go crackers just from that collar. Yeah, and this is for plus sizes. Damn, which is a lot more area to cover, and it's like, what the hell are you thinking? This book, however, when I got it in my hot little hands and I started flipping through it, I started squealing because I want to make a whole fuck ton of patterns in here, and the the pattern sizes range from about even from thirty five inches to like sixty inch busts. It depends. On the sweater, of course, but there are so many lovely and patterns in here, and there's a lot of information at the beginning about how to do body measurements and how to tweak the size and what kind of things to look for in patterns for different body types, and then they're separated by different kind of shoulder construction. So there's groups of patterns that are drop shoulders, there's raglans, there's set-in sleeves, all that sort of thing, and there are lovely patterns in here. Usually starts off with a fairly plain one, mm-hmm. stuff net stitch but like even in the first collection for drop shoulders there is a fair aisle sweater in here mm-hmm. that looks great because the patterns in it the fair aisle patterning goes vertically like there's a vertical snowflake pattern and then there's panels of like a, diff- a sort of a, a smaller sort of stitch pattern so while the color goes horizontally the patterning goes vertically and, and so, it's got what looks like almost princess seeming going yeah. on yeah, it looks like it's got waist shaping as well. Or at least that's the way it looks on the model. Yeah. You can never can tell. But, and it's got a really nice V-neck on it too. But so like, and you can only get the thin little bands of different colors and stuff. And even, and the colors, of course, progress vertically. And then you have, oh, and that sweater, I should say, so you can look it up on Ravelry. It's called the Vauxhall Tunic, V-A-U-X-H-A-L-L. And then there's the Waltham Cabled Cardigan by Kathy Zimmerman. And that's cable panels. That is your classic cardigan with a shawl collar. But, and it looks like it's got a couple, it's like a, two different cable patterns, a wider cable pattern bordered by two smaller ones on right. each side of the cardigan. And then beyond that, it's ribbing. And it's the same on the back. It's sort of mirrored on the back. Yeah. So that a lot of it is ribbing so you don't get the extra bulk of, that cables sometimes do. And I think it's done in a... should double check what yarn is in. It's done in a worsted weight. There you go. That yeah. should... But so there's yeah. a, a little bit of cables, so you get that... And you get that vertical detail, but you don't have, you know, the bulk of all the cables. And there's some... The Lystra Pullover by Lisa Schroer. It's a fine gauge, set-in sleeve, like, stockinette sweater. So I don't know if I would ever actually make it, but it would be a good base for maybe other sort of cable or twisted stitch patterns. True. Like, if you just wanted to experiment with maybe an accent going up from the cuff yeah. to the arm. Or it's like, I really want a pattern, I really, really, really want a sweater with these twisted stitch patterns on it. But instead of having to do the math, I'd be like, okay, there's the measurements and the number of stitches to cast on plug in these stitch patterns. Or there's this beautiful lacy one. That one's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's got lace on the front. There's a couple with like circular yokes. This one's got lovely lace patterning at the bottom. There's, oh my god, the other one I really, really want to do is the Barton cardigan. That looks comfy. Which also has like cables going up it. That's got cables all over the place. It's so lovely though. And it's it's actually a round yoke pullover. 
So it's probably done in one piece, actually. Actually, the lower body, okay, it's worked from the bottom up. So the lower body and sleeves are worked separately in the round to the underarms, then joined for working the yoke in round to the neck edge. So yeah. And actually, the front of it is steeked, where you oh. actually knit it in a tube and you cut it at the end to create the opening. And it's, oh, it's gorgeous. I love it. I want it. So bad. So yes, I think I will actually have to get this book and I will have to make things from it. Because mm. it is a very good one. And like I said, it's, and I don't have to do any fiddling with the patterns for size. I can just follow them as they are. And like I said, that's Knitting Plus by Lisa Schroyer. Excellent. Very heavy book review. So we should let you go as this is probably going to be a slightly longer episode too. Yes. <laughs> and it's going to be long for you to once edit we, too. Yeah. And once we, and I have to get this edited and out because I am off to Kentucky. Everybody say bye to Karen. Yep. So say hello to me if you're at the Kentucky Sheep and Fiber Festival. And we will see you guys in two weeks. So everybody be on your best behavior or yep. as usual, send us the pictures. Have a good week, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. To visit our show notes, listen to old episodes, or leave something in our tip jar, you can visit us at knitonegeek2.emptypockets.org. That's K-N-I-T-1 G-E-E-K mt-pockets.org. You can also comment at our Ravelry group. Just search the Ravelry groups for Knit One Geek Two. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at www.twitter.com/knitonegeek2. Have a good week, everybody. Where? <laughs> Finding these dingle balls. Jesus. Is there some sort of tesseract behind the behind the futon? Ooh, and if there's a tesseract behind the futon, is Loki gonna... Just a minute, I'll be back. <laughs> You'll be in your bunk. No dingle ball for you. Can I jump through said tesseract and rescue, rescue Agent Coulson? Yes, you can. <laughs> come with me! Yoink. Come with me if you want to live. Just don't yoink him too hard. You might be in traction. So going in outtakes. <sighs> there's a lot that's going in outtakes in this episode. <laughs>